Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Last week, I delivered a message called The Cross of Christ, and if you miss it, if you missed that message, I encourage you to check it out. You will understand today's message uh, apart from it, but it's, uh, it's essentially a sermon-length altar call. And I think you'll find it helpful in terms of sharing the gospel as well as in appreciating your own salvation. We talked about why Christ had to die. Uh, Why Paul, when he first went to Corinth, said he was determined to know nothing among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, what he was saying was that there's, not that the resurrection isn't important, but that they, the Corinthians, needed to understand that their sin meant they needed a savior, not just a teacher, not just a rabbi. And we established, not exhaustively, but effectively, I think, that what Jesus did at the cross was to absorb the judgment that belonged to us because of our sin. And that if we believe that, recognize that, and claim that sacrifice for ourselves, we will be saved. Now, The death Jesus died was sufficient to pay the price for all to be cleansed and forgiven, for all to claim their penalty was paid by Jesus. But even though the death of Christ was sufficient for the salvation of all mankind, only those who believe it and accept it will be declared righteous. Those who refuse, those who reject that payment will be judged. And it's not a matter of God saying, oh, so you don't want to worship me, huh? Well, then I'm going to do this to you. No, this was where we were all headed anyway. Eternal death, eternal punishment, until God intervened and made a way of escape. I review all that in preparation for this question. Why, then, did Jesus have to rise from the dead? If it was his death that was necessary to purchase our our redemption, what did the resurrection accomplish? And this, resurrection being what it is, the very center of Christianity, is much too big a question to cover uh, very well in one message. We can't say everything that deserves to be said. So I want to look at a couple of things that I think are not only significant theologically, but that will make us, I hope, consider our own response to the resurrection. Because first of all, it's not just a happy ending to the story. Now it certainly is that, among other things. This is what we sing about, and this is what we continue to rejoice about. He is risen in what is the most glorious aspect of our worship. But it's bigger than that. It's a validation of prophecy. Jesus said he would die. And also rise again. Let's read that again. Matthew 10, 33 and 34. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. We talked last week about how dull the disciples were, at least two weeks ago maybe, about Jesus speaking about his death. 
You remember? Three times, all fairly close to one another, certainly the last two times, he said very specifically, not, uh, I'm going away, I'm going to disappear, you won't see me. He said, I am going to be killed. First time he said it, Peter rebuked him. Second time, what'd they do? They just looked at him and said, uh, okay, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can I sit on one side, my brother sit on the other side? I really do think they were trying to process this as some sort of mysterious parable. What does he mean he's going to die? What does he really mean by that? Oh, well, he'll explain it to us uh, when we need to know, okay? And then it happened... And it turned out that what he was talking about when he said he was going to be killed was that he was going to be killed, physically nailed to a cross, and die a tortured death there. I guess then I'm thinking, why didn't they then go back to that statement that he made three times and say, if he meant this when he said he was going to die, could it mean that when he said he was going to rise in three days, that what he meant was, He's going to rise in three days. But they didn't do that, did they? They hid. They were cowering in fear. This guy they had staked their life on had just been condemned to death, public death, as a traitor, as a potential threat to the throne, and now they thought maybe now they're going to come after us. They denied knowing him. But again, they had this fixed idea of what Messiah would do, and once he died, it crushed them. They had to have been thinking, whoops, we bet on the wrong guy. We followed him right up to the end, right up to the point where it looked like there was no hope, waiting for him to call down his angels or do whatever it is the Messiah is going to do and kick this thing off, and now he's dead. But check this out. The Pharisees... When Jesus was crucified, the Pharisees requested the Roman... Let's just read this. In Matthew 27, beginning in verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver, speaking of Jesus, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Go your way, make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Why? Why not just watch the tomb yourself and see if he rises from the dead? They had one thing right, at least. Jesus gave them a timeline. He didn't say someday, in the near future, or in the distant future, I will rise. I'm not going to tell you when. You're just going to have to believe me and trust me. Well, he said three days. They couldn't wash the tomb themselves for three days. It's not like they had to watch it in perpetuity. No, they asked for a guard, and they told him specifically why. Uh, we, he said he's going to rise, and these, you know, what's going to happen? His disciples are going to sneak in there. They're going to steal the body and tell everybody that that's what he did. So let's read on Matthew 28, beginning in verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, 
As the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Slain in the spirit. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Just really quickly here. Can't wait to see how the chosen portrays this, because they've done such a good job, I think, in so many others. Again, you see these pictures, these depictions, you know, of them falling at his feet in worship, and you picture him saying, Rejoice, it is I. Uh, Verily, say to my disciples, I shall meet them in Galilee. It's like, it's almost like, hey, look, rejoice. And then it's like, yeah, 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 it's great to see you too. I'm going to Galilee. Tell the guys I'll meet them there. Can't wait to see them. Woohoo! And everybody's just kind of a, this great, exciting, energetic moment. Now, while they were going, verse 11, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave them a large sum of money, gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews this day. There's so much wrong with this. A Roman guard, it doesn't tell us, I don't think it tells us how many soldiers there were. A Roman guard has been, uh, depending on what source you look at, as few as 16 soldiers, as many as 60. A, a, an oversized squad or an oversized platoon of professional soldiers. Uh, and there was severe penalty for falling asleep on guard duty. Again, depending on the sources you read, uh, one was that you would be burned upside down in your armor or crucified upside down in your armor. Uh, it was horrible. There, there was incentives to stay awake on guard duty. It's, it is. It's, a, it's, a, it is. It's still to this day one of the worst things you could do is fall asleep on guard duty in the military. You're responsible. And it wasn't, but it wasn't just one guy. They had at least 15 others. Every soldier had at least 15 others, probably quite a few more than that, to make sure they had shifts could keep one another awake. And now they're going to say, what? We all happened to be asleep at the same time. Well, just stop right there. How could any one of them make that claim? So you were asleep. Yes. So how do you know he was asleep? If you were all asleep, how do you all know you were all asleep? And if you were all asleep, how do you know the disciples stole the body? A lawyer, tear these guys up. <laughs> so how could this work? Money. Money 
made a lot of these problems go away. Thank God we live in a better time where nothing like that ever happens anywhere <laughs> in our society. But you see, they were saying, look, it's really important that you say this. Society's going to get out of control if they believe the story you just told us. So just tell them you stole the body. Don't worry about your bosses. We're the ones that hired you anyway. We're the ones that wanted you to guard the tomb. You can't get in trouble unless we complain. We'll square it with the governor. Take the money and lie. Now, this is a key thing to understand. This, the gospel was easier to preach. I think it was. It was for me. I'm talking about as a, as a lay person. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, in the early days of my salvation, everybody had a moral, everybody in my circles had a more or less Christian worldview. The vast majority of, of Americans, certainly in middle America, self-identified as Christians. You did not have to lay a heavy apologetic argument on me. You didn't have to explain how the resurrection was possible. You didn't have to explain creation. You didn't have to explain anything other than show me in the Bible why I need a Savior. Now, today, it's a little bit of a different world. And we as ambassadors of the kingdom need to know a little more than we used to have to know. People have legitimate questions and they deserve legitimate answers. But here's another thing, and this is what's reflected in the Pharisees in the story we just read. It's not just that people are ignorant of the true gospel message. Many are resistant to it. They are not simply challenging your claims. They are actively looking for and hanging their hat on reasons not to believe. They want it not to be true. Now, I don't know why. It's kind of like I used to scratch my head. I, I understand people who they have a different view of uh, the activity of the Holy Spirit. They believe the gifts have ceased, and they still love Jesus. They're still saved. I think they're missing out on stuff. But it's one thing to say, well, I was raised in this tradition, and I have some scriptural issues with it. I have seen so much anger and vitriol and hate by coming from people who clearly don't want the gifts of the Spirit to be in operation anymore. And I'm like, why? I understand if you think they're not, but why would you not want this to be an age of miracles? It reveals some things about us, and it reveals some things about the culture we're living in when we share the gospel, and people don't just say, I'm not sure, but they say, but they look for reasons not to believe. What were the Pharisees thinking? I'll tell you what. Here's the problem, because if it's true, that requires a decision. That's the kind of truth that has repercussions. That's the kind of truth that has consequences. You know, try to imagine yourself in Jesus' day. Have you ever done this? And ask yourself, would you, do you honestly think you would have become a disciple? Would you have been a Pharisee? Would you have been a Sadducee? I think I would have been a Pharisee, honestly. I think that would be my great danger. I could certainly see myself at least following the teaching of the Pharisees. I think sometimes, why make it so hard, Jesus? Why didn't you just do something to make it black and white? Why so mysterious? 
After all, these guys were just trying to do the right thing. Well, up to a point. Because you remember they came to him asking for a sign? And you remember what his response was? It's an evil generation that asked for a sign. Now, this is a guy who was doing signs. Everywhere he went, he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He opened blind eyes. He did things that nobody else could do. He didn't do them in private. He didn't do them in secret. But when they came to him and said, now, do something to prove you're the Messiah, he says, that's evil. It's, an, it's your evil heart that's asking for this. I'll give you a sign. Here's what it's going to be. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man shall be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. This was the sign he promised him. And they, those people heard him say he would rise on the third day. These were scholars. These were men who were educated. Couldn't they put two and two together? Why not sit at the tomb and wait? Why fight it? This would have been the most obvious answer to their questions. You want a sign? I'll give it to you. I will rise in three days. And then rather than say, look, we know these guys are going to try to steal it. All right. Let's wait three days and see what happens. You know, what's his face? Um, was it Gamaliel who, told the, who gave him the counsel later on in the book of Acts? Hey, let's don't fight this thing too hard. These guys just might be of God. And if they're, God, if they're of God, we don't want to be fighting them. If it's not God, it's going to fizzle on its own already. There had already been false messiahs, people showing up claiming to be the Messiah in Jesus' time, before Jesus' time, before Jesus' time on the earth. Why couldn't the Pharisees have just said, they've already come and gone, same thing's going to be with this guy. But... If he does rise from the dead, then we'll know. They made up their minds that no matter what happened, they weren't going to believe. And that shows just how wicked they were in their heart. Because did they think the Roman soldiers were lying? What did the Roman soldiers report? There was a blinding white light, and then this big dude dressed all in white pushed not only a massive stone, but one that had been sealed, pushed it away, and sat on it, and we all fainted. And now the body's not there. And what? These were Gentiles telling this to the Pharisees. And what do the Pharisees say? Why not seize this moment and say, looks like he's the Messiah we were looking for. Let me tell you about this guy. We'll tell you what we know. And then you tell us more about what you saw. They're like, no, shut up. Don't tell that to anybody. Or you're going to start something. How you respond to the truth says a lot about you. And I think sometimes, I know better than this, and you do too, but sometimes you, know, you, you get these clowns. There's, there's amazingly no shortage of them all over the world claiming to be Jesus returned in the flesh. There are guys who pastor enormous churches. And, this, and their congregants believe this is the returned Jesus Christ. Making claims, doing miracles. And you're like, well, some very educated and dedicated people missed it the first time. Are we going to miss him? How are we going to know when it really is him? <laughs> I don't want to be left out. Even when I think about things that go on in church services, sometimes I'm not sure, but I don't want to be left out. I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I don't want to be found resisting what God is doing in our midst. So how do I decide? The Word of God. That's how I decide. It's so important to know your Bible. 
For all the confusion the Pharisees might have been genuinely experiencing, they were familiar with something that should have settled the deal once and for all. They knew he said he would rise from the dead after three days. This is such an extraordinary claim that they should have just watched and waited. If he did what he said he was going to do, that should have settled it. It'll settle it when he comes back too. By the way, it's going to look like this. Matthew 25, 31 says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. I think I've shared this before. Mylon Lefebvre came and shared with us at Canaan Land one day, and he was talking about all these false messiahs and false claims, and he says, If he ain't coming on clouds of glory with all of his angels, it ain't Jesus, pal. We'll know when it's him. But... At that point, it's too late for everybody who doesn't believe. We have the job as Christians of convincing as many people as possible that Jesus was who he said he was, is who he says he is. And the resurrection is still the best evidence of that. This is not a sermon on the apologetics uh, of the resurrection, but there is a ton of material out there. You ought to familiarize yourself with some of it, with as much as you can. Uh, Some great arguments. It turns out that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most well-supported events in history. But what you need to grasp right now is not that Jesus needed to rise, rose from the dead, but, that, but why he needed to rise from the dead for Christianity to be true. He had to rise from the dead because he said he would. It really was one of the most amazing things he said, if not the most amazing thing. Remember, he was talking about the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep, and he says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it back up again. If he didn't rise like he said he would, we would have no way of knowing if anything else he said was true or worth hearing. We would have no way of knowing his sacrifice paid for our sins. He would say, I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. I'm going to the cross and dying for you. But then he dies and stays dead. How do we know if it worked? Paul said it this way. And look where he said it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses to God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. This is from the same letter where we looked at him saying, when I first came to you, I determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. When he first came to them, that's what they needed to know. Your sin brings death. Christ died that death. Now, what we call 15 chapters later, into the same letter. And yet, now that you believed, your faith is worth, worthless. My faith is worthless if Christ is not raised. Without the resurrection, it is conceivable that he would be remembered. Jesus would be remembered. If nothing else, for his miracles. Maybe his teachings. It's possible that an insignificant religion might have grown up among his followers. But if he remained in the grave... It is inconceivable 
that his followers would have started and proceeded with a movement that in three centuries became the dominant worldview of civilization and would continue to grow to this day with at least those calling themselves believers in Christ, numbering in the billions. Especially since at practically every point in history, since the church began, it has been violently persecuted. Somewhere on the planet, somebody is always dying for their faith in Christ. Starting with his disciples. And that's another reason, perhaps the biggest reason, why this idea of the stolen body, this theory which was prevalent in Jerusalem at this time, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. We have seen people demonstrate over the years an unfortunate willingness to die for a belief that turns out to be false. Right? There's no sense saying that delusional maniacs aren't at least committed. They unfortunately are. <clears throat> but they're deceived. They are delusional. So the disciples' willingness to be martyred for their belief is itself not an argument for the truth of the resurrection. People have died for false beliefs. But if they stole the body... If the whole resurrection scene was a conspiracy they themselves orchestrated, then they'd know what they believe is not true. They're not deceived. Nobody dies for that. I'm staking my life on, I'm going, I'm going to be hanged, I'm going to be skinned alive, I'm going to be, sorry, I forgot there's kids in here. I'm going to, bad things are going to happen to me, painful things are going to happen to me because I'm saying I believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and I know that he didn't rise from the dead because I'm one of the ones that stole the body. No, at some point you just say, no, you what? I, I made that up. They had every, the only reason that they became who they became, died the way they died, in addition to living the way they lived, uh, is because they were convinced of the resurrection. It wasn't, and it's still not, just the empty tomb. They had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. And that encounter changed them, changed them fundamentally from hiding out, ducking the authorities, denying they even knew him. They went in just a few weeks to being absolute, literal world changers, boldly pro proclaiming Christ and his resurrection everywhere, ultimately paying with their lives, all except John, who apparently lived to a ripe old age and died uh, uh, probably of natural causes. And here's their apologetic. Here's their argument. When you say, why believe in Jesus? What makes Christianity different from every religion? The resurrection. Why believe? Because he lives. We say the same thing today. How do you know he lives? Yes, there's plenty of evidence from the historical record of the resurrection, but the best answer we can all give is still the one the disciples would give. I had an encounter with the risen Christ. This is Paul. Paul never met Christ in the flesh. He, he didn't meet Christ until post-resurrection. Post-ascension. How do you know he lives? He lives in me. I'm coming back to that in a minute. But as I close, and praise and worship team, you can be making your way up here. I want to make this point. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that we can trust every other promise he made. It means he is to be taken seriously when we read, when we hear his commandments. 
The resurrection is important because it demonstrates that Jesus Christ has power over death and the grave. And because he has and always has had that power, we can marvel and believe it when Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 19, a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. How do I know he lives? He lives in me. Nothing else can explain what happened to me when Jesus saved me. When I believed, he changed me. He continues to change me. He continues to save lives, change lives, heal, and more. Because he lives, and only because he lives, I can face tomorrow, whatever tomorrow holds. Last week, looking at his death, we drove home the point that because we were all in Adam, we all sinned when he sinned. And we died spiritually. When we believe in Christ, the world tells us, the word, sorry, the word tells us that when we believe in Christ, we are in Christ. And that means in him we were crucified and our sins were paid for and forgiven. That also means that we are risen with Christ. And therefore inheritors of eternal life. Quick question. Do you believe that? Romans chapter 10, 9 says, If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Stand up with me for a minute if you can. You guys singing during this? The altar call or during communion or what? During this, right? I just want to make a quick pointed invitation to you this Resurrection Sunday. Jesus went through that horrific death, everything we looked at. We didn't describe it in detail today or last week. We just looked at the importance of it and the truth of it. He died to make a way for you to be a part of his family, part of him, part of his kingdom. We can't get there apart from him. We can't be good enough. It's only through the death, the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we can be in Christ. But we have to decide to do that. Yeah, there's consequences to that belief. You can't say, yeah, I believe Jesus died. I believe his blood is sufficient to save me, and I want to be saved. But I'm still calling all the shots. You've got to come to him and say, if you're going to save me, you have to be my Lord. Or he comes to us and says, I'll save you, but I'm taking charge. See, you're dead. I'm going to give you life, but I'm not going to give you your old dead life back. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to give you a new life. There's nothing better. It's what you were made for. Don't run away from it. Don't put it off another day. What are you, going to, what are you pursuing that's better than that? It's pathetic when I think of what you are wasting by putting off salvation one more day. It's one thing if you don't believe, if you aren't convinced, if you genuinely aren't convinced, we can have a talk. But if you know better, young men, young women, old men, old women, if you know better, you are on dangerous ground waiting one more day. And you are squandering your life. 
God has a great plan for you. It's wonderful, but it's also important, not just to you. It's important to the world. He has a purpose for you, and that purpose involves bringing others into the kingdom. You want to be on that track? You want to get on that track starting today? Come up here and let me pray with you. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. I'm going to pray right now. And then as they start singing, if you want to make that decision, I challenge you to be bold enough to come down here and make it in front of those of us who have already made it in front of each other. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. And thank you for the resurrection to eternal life that you promise us who believe in you. It's a prayer of mine. It's the prayer I know of every believer in this room that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice, who has not yet made that commitment, not yet made that decision, that you would impress upon them, Lord, their lostness, their peril, that you convict them of the sin that's already there because we are in Adam, and that you would grant them repentance, that you would grant them the wisdom to make this choice, the courage to make it today, and the humility to make it publicly. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.